Good morning. Good to have you all with us. Those of you who are visiting, we want to uh, especially uh, welcome you, invite you to the visitor's class that uh, follows. Simply leave the sanctuary at the end of worship, turn left, go down to the welcome center, and the visitor's classroom is just to the left of that welcome center. It gives us an opportunity uh, to uh, recognize you and uh, to um, uh, get to know you a little better and hopefully to inform you somewhat about who we are and what it is that we believe and teach. Again, there are uh, no uh, evening services here. That is true throughout most of the summer. Let me ask you, if you would please, to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, the 10th chapter of Hebrews. We want to look at quite a bit of this 10th chapter, or at least the latter half of this uh, 10th chapter. But um, let me begin, before I pray, simply by looking at verse 39 and then reading the first two verses of chapter 11, and then giving some attention to the final two verses of chapter 11. But Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 39, of course, just to set the stage here very quickly, the book of Hebrews is called Hebrews because it was written to the Hebrews. It was written to Jewish Christians. It was written to Jewish Christians either in Jerusalem or Rome or perhaps some other place. We're not absolutely certain. I tend to believe, but most likely they were in Rome uh, they were, Paul, uh, the author, I'm sorry, we don't know the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews writes to these Jewish believers um, to encourage them. And we will see why, uh, hopefully in just a little bit, they need a great deal of encouragement uh, as they follow after Christ. Uh, and after encouraging them and after warning them about the consequences of falling away from the faith, the author of Hebrew writes in verse 39 of Hebrews chapter 10, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Faith. Faith, chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, for by this faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now look at verses 39 and 40 at the end of chapter 11. After listing a great many of the Old Testament saints, the writer of Hebrews pens for us these words, and all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, for that immediate generation to which the writer of Hebrews writes, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, give us some um, wisdom here as we deal uh, with um, passages of Scripture that are not um, all that simple for us. Um, we are not 
Uh, most of us, at least, are not Jewish in our background and um, perhaps not even well-versed in our understanding of Old Testament Scripture and the practice of, of the faith throughout the Old Testament uh, times. And therefore, much of what we read in this book leaves us a little bit confused and sometimes uh, absolutely befuddled. Uh, so by your grace and mercy, help us to see uh, the truth of what is written here, and particularly, Lord, this morning, help us to gain a further handle on this concept of faith. And pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The paper this last week, um, I can't remember whether it was Tuesday or Wednesday, I think it was one or the other, in the front page, bottom right-hand corner of the front page, uh, there was an article uh, concerning what scientists call the God particle. Uh, caught my attention, a friend of mine uh, who is not a part of this congregation, he called me and pointed it out and uh, asked me to help him further understand what it meant. Uh, I assured him I wasn't a scientist, but that I would try to read the article and some further materials and try to gain some, some, uh, some understanding of what this article was communicating. The God particle, apparently, uh, is what uh, some scientists theorize. And by the way, let me just say this by way of preface. I have the highest regard for science. Uh, I have the highest respect for scientists. I'm obviously uh, tremendously grateful for the advances of science and for the things that science has accomplished. I look around this room, and including myself in that number, there are many of us who wouldn't be here this morning uh, if it were not for some of the uh, advances that have been made even uh, in the latter half of our own lifetime. Uh, as far as medical science is concerned. So this is not knocking science in general, so don't hear that. Uh, we as Christians are often accused of that, and sometimes we're guilty of that, and that's just absolute foolishness. Now, that's just foolishness. Um, we have gained much from the advances of science. But there are some scientists who apparently are theorizing and have... Uh, run some experiments to try and validate this particular idea that at the beginning, uh, two atomic size, uh, two atom sized particles collided in space, and uh, follow that collision of these two particles. And, and I tried to envision in my mind a large swamp and two mosquitoes accidentally running into each other and. I just, I wonder how long that would take, but uh, two atoms uh, rushing through the, uh, the vastness of space that collide, uh, resulting in what we um, now call the Big Bang Theory, uh, and creating matter and antimatter. And the th what has always troubled science is that the matter and antimatter should have canceled each other out so that following this collision there should have been nothing. But following this collision there was something. And that something that was left over is what is called now in theory 
the God particle because it is from this subatomic size God particle that all that exists, that all that exists in the world, uh, all that exists throughout the universe has now come uh, into existence. Now, I'm not a scientist, and I, I cannot... Um, I cannot with any kind of um, insight uh, debate or argue uh, that particular idea, that particular theory. Uh, but as I was online, I noticed that what this one article to which I turned, there were about 600 responses to this article. And as I read through the responses, at least began to read through the responses, it was amazing to me that I would say... 80% of those responses had nothing to do with the article. 80% of those responses were an immediate and direct attack upon you and me. An immediate and direct attack upon now that science has demonstrated to us from where all matter has come, how can these Christians still cling to their outmolded ideas and uh, this 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 foolishness that, that, that comes out of, of the ignorance of, of things that were believed in the far distant past. I'm telling you, that's what most of the responses were. Most of the responses were not to the article. Most of the responses were an attack upon you and me. I, I just found that, I found that absolute. So I, I, I wrote something. Um, uh, it, was, it was very, very calm. Um, and uh, yeah, very insightful, and, um, uh, and so far no one has dared to answer, um, at least as far as I'm aware. I simply asked the question that I asked at the beginning. Where do these two particles come from? I'm not debating the Big Bang. I'm not debating the God particle. I don't know. I'm sure that my God could use whatever method he chose to use. I, I'm not, that's not my concern at this moment. And sometimes, by the way, I believe that's far too much of our concern. You know, we're going to explain it all. Well, i got news for you. You can't, except in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and here is the unfolding of that creation. That's, that's all I can tell you. But my, my question was, where did these two particles come from? And how, how long did it take for these two particles zooming around in the vastness of what Pastor Mullinex assures us is not infinite space? These two particles flying around in the vastness of space, how did they happen to collide? How long a time did that take? How did that come about? This is my point. I think in the way that most of us use the word faith, the word faith, the way most of us commonly think of the word faith, I think it takes a lot of faith to believe in the God particle. I, take, I think it takes a lot of faith to believe in something that nobody was there to see. But now they theorize that this is the way it came about. I think it takes a lot of faith to believe that. And immediately upon saying that, of course, 
We look here at Hebrews chapter 11. And what do we read? We read that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the conviction of things not seen. Now, that sounds somewhat like what I just described, having faith in a scientific theory that nobody was really there to see or to witness. Well, isn't that true for us as Christians? I mean, in what do you have faith? You have faith in what you cannot see. You have faith in what you did not witness. But there is a vast difference. What is that difference? Let me try this. How many of you celebrated the 4th? How many of you celebrated the 4th of July in one way or another? Some of you are not very patriotic. How many of you celebrated the 4th in one way or another? Okay, good, good. I hope you did. Why did you do that? Were you there 236 years ago? Did you hear the debate? Did you watch as these members of the Second Continental Congress signed that document? Did you witness any of that? Did you see any of that firsthand? Well, of course you didn't. And I guarantee you that there are some, and you might be astonished about how many, I guarantee you there are some somewhere who don't believe that ever happened. Linda's grandma Jackson, bless her heart, <laughs> I really liked her because she really liked me. Um, well, she, she's now with the Lord, but Grandma Jackson insisted upon the fact great what would be great grandma jackson for our children she insisted upon the fact that no no man ever landed on the moon that it all took place in the arizona desert somewhere and it was just staged by hollywood and i'm telling you there was no convincing her that that wasn't true there was no convincing her that we actually did send a man to the moon and he landed there so what's my point my point being there are things that we believe, things of which we are assured, some of those things taking place in the lifetime of some of us, though obviously there are a good many of you here this morning who didn't see all of that in the summer of 1969, as we got to witness by television, and it was just, it was one of those moments in time that you just could hardly believe, but there it was, and you celebrated the 4th. And you celebrated the 4th, not because you saw it, not because you were there, but because you were confident that these things took place. Now think about the Old Testament saints. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 2. For by it, that is, by faith, the people of old received their, their commendation. Now, now what, what is it that they believed? Go back to Hebrews 10 and verse 15. Hebrews 10 and verse 15. The Holy Spirit also bears witness for us, 
For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. This is a promise that God is communicating to them. This is a promise that they are being told by their prophets that God has given. And His promise is, there will come a day when I will make with them this covenant. I will put my law on their hearts and I will write those laws on their minds. And when I do this, when I do this, when their hearts are recreated and their minds are enlightened, he says, then I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So here they lived. They lived with this prophetic promise that one thing, one day, things would be different. And for them, more radically different than we begin to appreciate. Look at the very, what for us, is the very strange language of verse 18. Verse 18 for us, I, I don't know how many times many of us read this verse and go, what in the world does that mean? This is what we read in verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, what's the these? The these are the sins and the lawless deeds, back in verse 17. That's the immediate antecedent. Where there is forgiveness of their sins and their lawless deeds, there is coming a day when I have recreated their hearts, when I have enlightened their minds, there, will, there is no longer, there will no longer be any offering for sin. These are Jews. The book of Hebrews is written to Jews. What have they spent their lifetime doing? They have spent their lifetime offering up sacrifices daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, special occasions, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And now the reader, the writer of Hebrews says to them and says to us that these people waited for the fulfillment of a covenant promise of a promise from their God that He would make with them a covenant, a covenant in which He would change their hearts, He would enlighten their minds, and when He had done that, there would be, their sins would be forgiven, and there would no longer be any sacrifice for sin. Why? Because there would no longer need to be any sacrifice for sin. Why? Because in time and space, God became a man. And His name was Jesus. And He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. And then He took upon Himself the sins of His people. And now, sinless, yet the sin-bearer. On Calvary, He suffers and dies to pay the penalty for their transgressions. And then, in time 
and space. He physically, bodily, rises again from the dead in time and space. It is amazing to me, and obviously this is my calling in life, so I have greater opportunity than most of you do to pursue reading and and study in particular areas. And it is amazing to me how few people ever have taken the time to deal seriously with the claim of the bodily resurrection of Christ. Christ risen from the dead validates everything He taught, which included His embracing of the Old Testament Scriptures, validates everything He taught, and it validates everything He did. That when He dies, the penalty for sin is paid. The writer of Hebrews says there's coming a day when there will be no more sacrifice for sin. Why no more sacrifice for sin? Because the sacrifice for sin has once and for all finally been offered up. Think of these Jewish people. Think of them standing there beside the Jordan. Think of them looking at this strange man named John the Baptist. And suddenly they watch as John's eyes turn and land upon a particular individual. And then John speaks these words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everything changes. He's the final and perfect Lamb of God. He offers up the final and perfect sacrifice for sin. Which is why, look at the end of chapter 11 of Hebrews, which is why I believe we are told that all these, these Old Testament saints, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, did not receive in their lifetime what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What, has, what was the better thing that God had provided for those to whom the author of Hebrews writes? It was the life, the birth the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the reign, and now for us, the promised return of this man named Jesus. God come in human flesh, crucified, dead, and buried then risen again from the dead. Let me show you something. Look at Hebrews 7. Look at Hebrews 7. This is what the author of Hebrews writes. Hebrews 7, um, look at verse 23. Hebrews 7, verse 23. Verses 23 and 24. The, um, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing, continuing in office. Obviously, he's referring back 
to the structure and form of Judaism at the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. Verse 24, but he, Jesus, look at verse 22, he's talking about Jesus. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Look at verse 26. Verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this once for all, he offered up himself. Jesus is the one who lives, ever lives, to make intercession for them, intercession for them forever. Look back at verse, um, verse 22. This, this Jesus, I've got the wrong verses here. Look back at um, verse 16. I'm sorry. Look back at verse 16. Jesus became a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily death, but by the power of an indestructible life. Verses 24 and 25, he continues forever, um, and he is able to save, therefore, to the uttermost because he always lives. Here's the testimony of the writer of Hebrews. This is absolutely essential. He, he lives an indestructible life. He, he lives an indestructible life. He continues forever and he always lives. Now let me tell you what some say. And I want you to follow this. This is what some say. Some say the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not a physical reality. Some say that what happened that first Sunday morning was that Jesus spiritually rose again in the hearts of his disciples. And they gave up their lives for the sake of making him and his gospel known. He did not really physically rise again from the dead. He just rose again in their hearts, inspiring them to go forth and proclaim a gospel in which they repeatedly would claim that he was bodily risen from the dead, but it wasn't true. It was only true in their hearts. That's ludicrous on the face of it. It's just ludicrous. I've used this illustration many times before, but it's one of my favorite. So I'm going to use it again. 1994, the Cardinals won the World Series. I believe that. Nothing will ever change my mind. Now, if you weren't so ignorant about baseball, you would know that in 1994 there was no World Series. Season ended with a player's strike. There was no playoff. There was no World Series. But I believe the Cardinals won the World Series. It's what I believe in my heart. I know it's true. Well, I mean, what's your response to that? Your response to that is to say, Pastor, you're an idiot. It's ridiculous. There wasn't any World Series in 1994. How can you believe such, 
such absurdities. The Apostle Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not risen from the dead, then we are fools, and we are to be pitied above all people. But, as Paul goes on to write, Christ is risen from the dead. Now listen to me. Just just listen to me a moment. These are Jews. Do you think any Jew could continue to believe that a particular individual was the long-promised Messiah if that man was arrested and put to death by the Romans whom the Jews hated and despised and having been put to death, that was the end of it. Well, we know they wouldn't because that pattern is repeated often in their history. The Messiah has come. No, he's been put to death. Yep, he wasn't the Messiah. The Messiah has come. No, he's been stoned. Well, that wasn't the Messiah. The Messiah has come. But the Romans have put him to death. That's the end of it. The Messiah has come. Upon a cross, he has died. And now everything changes. Because he is bodily, physically risen again from the dead. Was I there? Of course I wasn't there. But I wasn't there July 4th, 1776 either. And I certainly wasn't on the moon in July of 1969. But we know those things took place. Sure, there's a handful who would say, no, they didn't. And we look at them and go, what gives? All I ask you to do, if you, if you are here this morning and you wrestle with the validity of the truth of the gospel, of the truth of what we call our faith, then I, I challenge you to examine in depth the resurrection of Christ. Many years ago, my children gave me this large volume via Dr. Roberts of Oxford, I think, called World History, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Um, it took me about a year to read through it, at bits and pieces, but it was, it was wonderful. And when, doc, when he gets to the New Testament era, This is basically what he writes. I I, I keep meaning to bring this sentence in here. But basically he writes, the New Testament documents do not prove to be an unworthy source of historical information. You hearing that? That's a double negative. Which in fact means the New Testament documents, even in even in the eyes of a secular historian, are a worthy, uh, are historically reliable documents. By any test you want to use, any test you want to use, the record of the life and death, resurrection and ascension of our Lord is given to us 
in documents by any test you want to use that are historically reliable. So why are they rejected? I think there's one overwhelming reason. They contain supernatural events, miraculous events. And since we know that no man ever rises again from the dead, we know that Jesus did not rise again from the dead. That's it. That's the bottom line to the argument. Listen to me. We are not a people who hold to, I hope it's so, I hope it's so, I hope it's so, faith. Our faith, and therefore our hope, is grounded firmly in events that took place in time and space. So why don't the multitudes believe? Because, and this must always be the focus of our prayer, when we're praying for those who do not yet believe. Because we are people enshrouded in the darkness of sin and of ignorance because of our rebellion against the One who is our Creator and King. And it is only by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our minds that our hearts, as we read, are recreated, and that our minds are enlightened, and that we can see and embrace the truth of the Gospel. But when we exercise that faith, it is not a mindless act. It is not walking to the edge of a cliff and saying, okay, I'm going to jump because I'm going to believe that there's a ledge just five feet down there and I'll, get, and I'll land on it. That is not our faith. That is not who we are. That is not who we are. We are a people who believe in the man Christ Jesus, who lived, who died, who rose again, who ascended back to the Father's right hand. All of which took place in time and in space. Our faith is in the faith of a God who has manifested Himself repeatedly throughout the history of mankind. So, one last point. So why do we have this hope concerning our Lord's return? When He will come again to judge the living and the dead and take us who believe to be with Him forever and bring His judgment to bear upon those who have dared. Why do we believe all that? Because we've been given every reason to believe all that. My wife told me this morning she loved me. Now I ask you, can you believe that? You see what I mean? But I know it's true. Why? Because I got 44 years of history, and I know it's true. And I know it's true today, 
And I know it's true tomorrow. And I know it's true as long as the Lord gives us breath upon this earth. I know it's true. And she's a fallible, sinful, inconsistent individual. Don't hit me. It's true. I know some of you don't believe that, but ask her. It's true. We believe in the one who has revealed himself throughout human history, has shown himself to be faithful, has shown himself to be faithful. And it is in the light of who he is, what he has done, and what he promises. that we now live our lives, that we come before Him innocent of all charges because the blood of Christ covers us and before Him we bow down and before Him we stand back up upon our feet, now strengthened by Him to go forth and fulfill His holy purposes to the glory and to the honor and to the praise of His holy name and for the good and blessing of others. That's who we are. That's what we believe. That is our faith. Let's pray. Father, teach us these truths. Impress them deeply upon our hearts. May they take hold of us and not let go of us. And we pray it in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.